внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. It was always going to be a difficult needle to thread. The Biden administration clearly views Russia's Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline as a geopolitical project that threatens Europe's energy security and that of Ukraine and eastern flank NATO allies like Poland and the Baltic states. But in Germany, the main destination of the pipeline, the project has powerful supporters, investors and stakeholders, which makes imposing sanctions, to say the least, pretty difficult. So the, now the United States is trying to thread that needle, punishing an adversary without also hitting a close friend and ally. This week, we'll discuss that effort. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is Josh Rudolph fellow from Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. I must also note that Josh is also the author of the recently published must-read report, Covert Foreign Money. Welcome back to The Vertical, Josh. Hi, Brian. Great to be in The Vertical. Always great to have you in The Vertical. And also joining us from Capitol Hill is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent bipartisan and bicameral commission in the United States Congress. Welcome back to The Vertical, Paul. Excited to be back, Brian. Excited to have you back. Excited to have you. Excited to be back. And also joining us from across the pond from a city I adore in Riga is Christine Berzinia, a senior fellow at the GMF Alliance for Securing Democracy, where she works on building transatlantic cooperation to counter authoritarian interference in democracies. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. It's wonderful to be here. Great to have you. Man, I know it's late over there, so thanks for staying up late with us. So what we understand from the media reports so far is this. In its report to Congress next Wednesday, U.S. State Department will say that the company overseeing Nord Stream 2 and its chief executive, Matthias Varnik, who, by the way, is a former Stasi intelligence officer and a close crony of Vladimir Putin going back to Putin's days in Dresden, they are engaged in sanctionable activity under U.S. law, but the Biden administration has decided to waive the sanctions for national security reasons. And those reasons are, obviously, maintaining good relations with a key ally, Germany. So this just about blew up Twitter when it was announced, um, with critics claiming that the Biden administration was going soft on Russia. The news broke as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was preparing for his first meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on the sidelines of Arctic Council meeting in Iceland this week. Josh, let's start with you. I was watching your Twitter feed with a lot of interest yesterday. Are the critics right, or did the administration just manage to thread a very, very difficult needle here? 
definitely a very difficult needle, and I think that they are managing to thread it as well as they can on this issue at this moment. I mean, Biden and Blinken are the first ones to say that Nord Stream 2 is a bad deal, a non-commercial geopolitical weapon meant to leave our eastern frontline allies out in the cold, and we cannot just sit around doing nothing about it. The problem is that traditionally, when American officials feel that they need to do something, anything, about bad activity, the first lever that they reach for tends to be sanctions. And while there is you know, some leverage from having that possibility lurking in the background, it's generally the wrong tool for this problem set, which you know needs nuanced diplomacy and energy policies. Now, I should say, I come to this issue not as an expert on, on energy or an EU regulatory environment, that's why we have Christine here, but rather as like a, a, a transatlanticist practitioner of Russia sanctions. And so I believe that plowing ahead with unilateral sanctions on Nord Stream 2 would be more likely to weaken our overall sanctions posture towards Russia because it's reliant more than anything on unity with the EU when that in turn hinges on support from Germany. And so to see like why that's so important, recall back to 2014. Resolve from Berlin and Brussels enabled partly because Obama had a, a relatively good relationship with Europe. That was the single biggest response that unpleasantly surprised Putin, the European resolve after the GRU shot down MH17. And Angela Merkel never looked back, held firm even when facing down you know, Trump and Putin and domestic challenges all at once. And so for us to now come and start sanctioning German companies for contributing to a project that's supported by the German government would risk uh, jeopardizing Jeopardizing, I mean, that support, first of all, like support for our existing Russia sanctions, but also on anything important that we want to do mm -hmm. in the world, right? I mean, responding strongly to future attacks on, say, Navalny or Ukraine, standing together against the Chinese, you know, human rights abuses, vaccinating the world without patent protection, saving the climate from dirty industries like the Iran nuclear deal. Those are the types of big foreign policy accomplishments that eluded Trump with mm -hmm. all of his unilateral sanctions and belligerence towards allies. So that, we've learned, is a costly way of dealing with these issues. And you know, we need to show that it was a one-time aberration. I would also say, you know, suggest that like any of those four other bigger objectives I just laid out are more important than stopping a pipeline. Now, that being said, Germany is not our only you know, important ally. So we can't just sit around doing nothing. We should talk more about what yeah. we can and be doing and need. Yeah, to no, this is this is complicated and it's nuanced. And I mean, Josh, anybody that knows your career and work knows you are no dove on sanctions or on Russia. So when I was seeing you come out against the sanctions here, it caught my attention. I'm glad you raised 2014 because this is actually very, very relevant. Angela Merkel did indeed stand you know, shoulder to shoulder with the United States against Russian aggression at that time and never did look back. But there was a political cost for that at home for her. And I don't know if this is the case, and maybe Christine could shed some light on this, but what I can glean from press reports and what I've been seeing from open source material is that Merkel was forced to basically cut a deal with the Social Democrats in Germany. You want us to stick with you on sanctions, you better stick with us on Nord Stream. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's been out there in the ether. I want to bring Paul into this discussion because I was watching Paul's Twitter feed yesterday. It was um, saying a lot of things that were very different from what Josh's Twitter feed was saying. I know you guys are friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, um, Paul, I know you've long been a staunch advocate of sanctions on Nord Stream 2. 
And my intuition tells me, not just my intuition, my eyes tell me, because I was reading your Twitter feed yesterday, that you were disappointed with where the administration seems to be going on this. Am I correct? Yeah, so it's, it, I mean, it's, it's good to highlight that Josh and I are the closest of friends. We work together very closely on a large number of topics, and it's fun to do this sort of clash of the titans scenario when, we're, uh, when we have a bit of a disagreement. And I think it shows the intellectual honesty from both of us that we are not of one mind on every issue, for sure. And we are not of one mind here. I mean, when I look at this, I guess there's two big issues to me. First of all, is there's a political issue, and then second of all, is there's a substantive issue. And I'm a politics guy, okay? Josh says coming at this as a as sort of a executive branch operator. I'm, I really care about political messaging, narrative, all that kind of stuff. And from that perspective, it's hard to see this as anything but a mess. I mean, it looks like the the administration is bucking Congress and, and sort of ignoring the will of the American people in order to do the Kremlin a favor, in order to prioritize this fuzzy relationship with Germany, which I want to drill down on that because I keep hearing it, it's to restore the transatlantic alliance. It's to restore that, well, Germany is not Europe. Germany is one country within Europe. And I mean, I lived in Germany for many years. I speak German. I have a German degree. I'm a big Germanophile, you know, but, Germ <laughs> but Germany is not Europe. And it's not the only country there. It's not the only one that matters. And it's important also to recognize that within Germany, there is a huge debate on Nord Stream 2. And in fact, uh, one of the leading chancellor candidates, of course, Baerbock, has mm -hmm. promised to scrap the project if elected. So, I mean, we need to be cognizant of the fact that and there's the, no the unanimity. And the Russians hacked her the other day uh, to, for her troubles. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, I would say that the, you know, insofar as there is any sort of consensus or unanimity, it is against Nord Stream 2 within Europe. It is against this project that is really only favored by a handful of kleptocrats, a handful of influential businessmen and politicians. And Brian, maybe that's correct, that Merkel made this deal at one point, maybe not. But in any case, it's very clear that it is a small influential minority that is in favor of Nord Stream 2 and that it does not reflect the European will insofar as such a thing can exist or any sort of general consensus in Europe to support Nord Stream 2. So I, I don't see this at all as strengthening the transatlantic alliance, certainly not in exchange for bucking the will of Congress, which of course this becomes a separation of powers issue as well, which also really, really, really bothers me. I mean, Congress mandated these sanctions. This was not a, oh, you may, you know, oh, you oh, you can, if it, it, you shall do it, you know? And yes, they used a national interest exemption, but that means you have to have overwhelming evidence, overwhelming argument that this is the national interest. And the fact that we're having this sort of a conversation, the fact that this is going on at all, the fact that it is so controversial is such clear evidence that there is not overwhelming consensus that this is in the national interest. And in fact, the way that Congress has reacted, the way that the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Ukraine caucus, the, you know, the ranking members all around, there is bipartisan condemnation in Congress of this decision. So politically, it's really hard to look at in any sort of positive light. And then finally, there's a, the announcement of this, that the conduct is sanctionable, but we're not going to sanction. We're going to put sanctions on and immediately waive them. I mean, just kind of the idea there to make that sort of announcement, it's hard to look at that with a straight face. In DC, we often talk about the straight face test, and that does not pass the straight face test. So that's all the political reasons. And I, and I guess I'll leave it there right now. But then I also have major substantive disagreements. If we take seriously the argument that this is in the national interest, I do not believe that it is in the national we, interest. We, we got a whole program to hash that out. Can, can I just say that I, while I have like a whole bunch of responses that I'm like jotting down and want to share, 
I am not going to do that right at this point because I have to say, so I work with Christine and Christine has more expertise on this issue than Paul and me combined. So let's let her kind let's of go, be, yeah, let's, let's be bring the judge. Yeah. Let's bring Christine into this. Thanks, I wanna... Josh, I'm not sure that's uh, true, but at least I, I can tell you how it looks like from over here. So I, in many ways, agree with Paul on this. Looking at this come through, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, but in for various reasons. Normally, I don't necessarily say, you know, you must sanction any particular entity. But there is a lot of messaging that comes through with this decision to put a waiver against not just any European commercial actor or any German company, but Nord Stream and the CEO of Nord Stream itself, right? So we're not talking about a particular Baltic port or an insurance company, because when it comes to these sanctions and these, there's a sense of, you know, these sanctions could be applied to anyone who helps this greater effort, right? And you could have innocent middlemen who are, you know, otherwise insuring everyday construction projects also getting caught in this geopolitical mess, right? We're not talking about innocent bystanders here. We're talking about Nord Stream itself, right? And to issue a waiver in this case sends a big message to the Kremlin that we're not gonna go after your guys, right? Nord Stream, a European company, and then we put a big question mark there, right? Because we aren't talking about the ports and the, you know, Angela Merkel's own constituency, um, which is, you know, in where a lot of these pipelines land. We're talking about Nord Stream as this problem in the transatlantic relationships since the first pipeline was brought up almost 20 years ago. So when you look at this from Europe, Germany is not Europe, but Germany is not by any means of a single mind when it comes to this pipeline. There are particular political parties that really support this pipeline. Uh, Brian, you brought up the fact that, you know, the speculation that Angela Merkel had to strike a deal with the SPD about this pipeline. I can't verify for sure that that is the case, but that feels right in many ways. When you saw this particular grand coalition come into power when Angela Merkel assumed office, the junior partner in this relationship decided to change around the way that the politics worked and the SPD put energy into the industry, the the economics ministry, away from the environmental folks. Mm -hmm. And then that is the the, the junior partner that wanted to take that basket for himself. And this is Sigmar Gabriel. Right. So you see the junior partner of the coalition say, yeah, I'm going to come. I'm going to join your coalition. I'm going to take the energy portfolio away from the environment ministry. I'm going to put it in the economic ministry and I'm going to be in charge of it. So that, I think, shows just how important for the present powers that be, how important this issue is and energy as such is for the junior coalition. Plus, this is the holy grail in many ways for them. Because having good economic ties to Russia is something that harks back to days of Willy Brandt and Ostpolitik. When you have debates about this with Germans today, even though you know people on the CDU side will not really question the Ostpolitik, which means establishing closer economic relations, including all these pipelines with Russia. This is credited in the popular consciousness with why the wall came down, why the USSR fell apart, why we have a much greater sense of freedom across Central and Eastern Europe and in Russia than we had previously, right? So in many ways, you can't touch the fact that 
fundamentally pipelines are a good idea, especially among the SPD. But it's really different in other parts of the government. For the Greens, who are polling best going currently, mm-hmm. looking at the September election, they have no war guilt. They have no loyalty to socialism. They do not feel, I mean, the, the president had said that literally Germany owes it to Russia to finish this pipeline because guilt and debt are the same thing. And yeah, so- my answer to that is what about the Ukrainians, who they should also have okay. some more guilt towards? But there, <laughs> so you have this mess of history and guilt and debt and how that fits together. But the new people who are coming on board, a newer generation of politicians, be they in the CDU or in the, you know, Norbert Röcken is an example of that, or you look at the Greens, they have no guilt. They don't have issues. They just look at what Russia is today. They look at the principles. They think about what role Germany should be playing. And they're like, screw it. We don't want to deal with this pipeline. Right. So I think you have a diversity of views in Germany. And based on the polling, those new views are going to win out when this election happens. So you have a very small window of time for the people who want this pipeline to be built for them to build this. And the Russian ambassador to Germany in the last few weeks explicitly said that they aim to finish the pipeline before the election because they know they're screwed if they don't. And so for the rest of the Europeans, and it's many countries across Europe who are deeply skeptical, France blows hot and cold, but it's definitely not totally pro Nord Stream 2, even though they also, their company had a financial stake in it. You have all of Central and Eastern Europe completely opposed to it for political reasons. For all of those, like the U.S. who are opposed, the time to stop it is now. If it's built before September, once it's on, it'll be harder to turn off. And so any steps that signal that the U.S. is going to be soft on energy, that the U.S. is not going to do everything it can to stop the pipeline, or that it thinks it's already you know, a fait accompli and it's not worth the energy, these things are harmful. Yeah, no, and the clock is ticking, Christine. I mean, it's 95% finished. And so it's really nearing the finish line. You talked a lot about German guilt and German values and things like that. But there's another thing here, German interests. And not just German interests, but the interests of the German industrial lobby. Because my understanding of this is one of the reasons the industrial lobby really wants to do this is they want to turn Germany into the gas hub for Europe, basically. So by completing Nord Stream, Germany becomes a major energy player in and of itself, or the German industrial lobby becomes a major player in and of itself. And so this is, I always thought, and I think that, yes, the war guilt is sincere and the values are sincere and the nostalgia for Auspolitik is sincere. But I think under all this sincerity, there are some really hard, cold, calculated interests of the industrial lobby. But I also wanted to bring you in, Christina, about the rest of Europe. You're in Riga. I imagine this is viewed very differently in Latvia or in the neighboring countries of Estonia and Lithuania or in Poland than it is in Germany. And as you pointed out, these countries are also part of Europe. Um, And they're important U.S. allies that truly look to the United States for leadership. You feel this every time I go to that part of Europe. In salvaging the relationship with Germany, did the United States just harm its relations with our friends in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Romania? There's a long list of countries that are opposed to this. How does this look outside of Germany and the rest of Europe? When you look across Europe's eastern flank, there is a question, you know, does does the U.S. have this region's back? That is really front and center. Energy is a part of that. Uh, I would say there's a difference between the Baltic states that don't directly have really anything to do with the existing pipelines. The Baltic states have their own direct Mm -hmm. link to Russia for gas and don't really play directly in terms of their own energy supplies into the bigger question about the massive pipelines that come across Poland, Ukraine, et cetera. It's a different 
part, a different branch altogether. But there is a geopolitical, political, strategic solidarity question that is incredibly important here. Will the United States stand up for Europe, European security? Well, it's going to be tough on Russia. That is something that is incredibly important. So if this is going to, if this waiver, if a stance on Nord Stream is going to be considered as a marker for how tough this administration is going to be on Russia, this isn't going to play well. But energy really, again, over here and even in Poland, energy is really, it's important, but it's not important as the enhanced forward presence, as the, the actual military boots on the ground mm -hmm. presence here and support, right? So I'd say, you know, as long as that keeps going, as long as this administration is tough on the hardest kind of hard security questions in this region and through NATO, I think it's okay. But I think that if this is part of a general, oh, we need to have lots of people in the room to talk about global issues, and therefore we're going to look at scans at Russia's attempts to subvert our political freedoms or hurt our friends, I mean, that's not going to go well. That is a really bad thing for this administration to signal. Right. You know, the, the administration can be especially tough on Russia in hard security ways. Yeah here, which I think could counteract that, but we have to see that, right? It's like you can't just have a waiver and then not have a rest of a package well, of what is, you're yeah. about Russia. This is interesting because history, I mean, things kind of come full circle in a lot of interesting ways. And I'm recalling back in 2009 after the reset was announced and there was a lot of fears on Europe's eastern flank that the United States was going to sacrifice their interests on the altar of good relations with Russia. And I remember at that time, because I remember because I was on the trip as a journalist at the time with then Vice President Biden, who was doing this uh, reassurance tour <laughs> across Europe's eastern flank to say, you know, we still got your back. We still got your back. You know me. And now here we have President Biden. And I'm wondering What's going to be the functional equivalent of the reassurance tour? I know, Josh, you are totally chomping at the bit to answer some, <laughs> some of the slings and arrows that have been uh, directed <laughs> at you. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you now. Oh, wait, wait. So sorry. Oh, One quick before that. On the industry question, not all a German industry. Gas industry, yes. But I think if you look at BDI, if you look at a general swath of German industry, they're not necessarily behind this project, right? So I think that you need to be have a more nuanced view. German industry, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of businesses. Again, I think more as Paul said, you have a lot of big actors that have really big muscles that want this. It's not all of Germany. It's not all the German industrial complex. Okay. No, no we'll bear that in mind. Josh, go. Good point. And, and all right. So on the slings and arrows, the slings and arrows are really smart and well-informed points about politics. And I concede them. It is a political mess. It's a political disaster, both domestically and internationally. I mean, domestically, my reading of the PISA legislation is that in the, in the most recent version, the in the NDAA in January, it lowered the threshold for a waiver from national security to national interest. I mean, that, that's now an easier, an easier yeah. bar to meet. It also mandated consultations with the Europeans. So I like kind of see those things, and it suggests that Congress you know, maybe may signaling there that it's willing to to listen to a deal that the the administration might be able to to go out and and negotiate with the Germans and the administration. It needs now some space to be able to go conduct those investigations, which is what the waiver is about. But it's certainly the balls in the administration's court. They're going to have to bring something back to show Congress this is not going to be it and enough. On geopolitics, I mean, you also you guys also both make good 
points. I mean, Paul, about Germany is not Europe. And, and Christine as well. Germany is not of a single mind. I mean, I'm thrilled to see the, the coming of the Greens and their, their common sense on this issue. I think these are all really good arguments to and meet the threshold of the United States government coming out publicly and diplomatically and strongly against the pipeline, which is what they've done. Even sanctioning, you know, Russian entities and vessels and, and people involved. My point is that it is a much higher standard, a threshold to start sanctioning our allies. And like the last thing I'll say, so that's a point about policy and just a point about our, our values and our shared values with our allies. You will know this better, Christine, as you were just describing. My hope and expectation would be that our Eastern European allies know that we have their back, especially if you if you compare it to their options. They know they have neighbors in one direction that the, the Russians have only ever known how to dominate their neighbors. That's why they've never been able to sustain allies over time. And neighbors in the other direction and extending to the United States that are unwilling to sanction our allies because we treat them like friends. We haven't done that in the past couple of years and need to really make a point of, of restoring it now. So if I could I wanna, just really go quick, ahead, Paul. Uh, go just ahead. a direct response to that, because I do take a bit of an issue with that. I am a believer in sanctioning enablers. I'm a believer in sanctioning bad actors, whatever their nationality. And I think that's what we need to embody, because we live in this world of kleptocracy, where oftentimes these kleptocrats will co-opt and gain allies within Germany or within Latvia. And, and in fact, we have sanctioned, you know, quote unquote, allies. We've sanctioned Lembergs in Latvia. We've sanctioned Gertler in Israel. I challenge you to tell me that this guy, Matthias Warnick, who is a former Stasi agent and a crony of Putin, does not match the profile of Gertler and Lembergs. No, I want no, to pick he, up on he, that. He, I want to, I want to worse. Yeah, he's, no, he's, I, yeah I, I want to pick up on this because I've studied Mr. Varnick a little bit. And, you know, this guy, when we say we're sanctioning our ally, really, Matthias Varnick is our ally. This guy was a Stasi agent. This guy worked against the United States and against NATO and against democracy and against freedom. This guy was involved in all sorts of schemes with Putin when Putin was a KGB officer in Dresden in the 1980s. And then he magically pops up as suddenly, I mean, it's it's very lucrative to be Putin's pal back in the 90s in Dresden, drinking beer with him and, and doing all sorts of smuggling schemes and everything else that they were involved in. So again, is this, are we sanctioning our ally? Uh, do I, I don't want to re equate the Federal Republic of Germany with Matthias Varnick. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's fair. Um, I'm totally with everything that you said, except for maybe that very last point with, on the fact that I do think it matters that he's a natural, you know, born citizen of Germany. It's especially important within the German legal and political system. That matters to them. We have, on a couple of cases that Paul mentioned, sanctioned nationals of EU member states or, uh, you know, Gertler, like the, the Latvian case, we typically do that when a target is, it's sort of like the last option when they're evading justice, evading the legal system, they own the courts or whatever it is within their own countries and their own government themselves want us to help them solve this problem, or they will at least quietly go along with it because they'd love a little bit of mm -hmm. little, little bit of help by, by zapping their you know the guy's financials. I don't think that's the case here 
with Germany. The German government is not asking us to sanction warnings. No. So, I mean, I would love to do it based on this, this guy, but this is not a matter of love. This is business. This is the business of engaging with the German government about how we're going to stand together against Russian aggression. I mean, this is an issue I want to dive deeper into in the second half below the fold, and that is that Russia has set up, Putin has set up shell companies all over Europe, all over Europe, that are nominally European entities, right? This is not a secret. This is open source. This is out there. It's been testified about in the um, Roman Kupchinsky, my former colleague at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, testified about this before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee way back in 2008. There was a groundbreaking article in Stern in 2007 about this. And most of these companies are headed by you citizens, right? German citizens, right? Former Stasi agents. But I want to get into this in the second half. I want to stick with the, the issue of Nord Stream now. But before we move to the second half- Well, and I'll just, I'll just really, really quick, just wanted to, wanted to drop that when we hit Gertler, which by the way, the Israelis were not happy with, but when we hit Gertler, we also hit a support network in Europe. We hit the Belgians that were helping him to pillage the Congo and that sort of thing. And we, you know, I'm sure that they were Belgian citizens and I'm sure they were not happy about getting hit with sanctions, but, happy but, about but, that either. So- I don't well, think that always needs to be the case. Thing about it, did, did was the Belgian government saying, "What are you doing? How dare you? These are our people. Like you're violating our territory." I I don't recall. I don't know is the, that. Is that what the Germans would say if we sanctioned Varnick? Do you feel that? It's tricky. I mean, he's politically powerful. I, I, I don't think I don't think they I don't think they would. But, Maybe. but okay. Yeah. No. It's, it's we don't know. One other thing I did want to get into, and something you said, Paul, that I'm not sure I agree with. You you see, you characterize this as a favor to the Kremlin, and I don't think. That's what's going on here. But what I do think is going on, and those that have you know better visibility into the administration than I do could feel free to correct me. But what I think the administration is doing with Russia right now is they're trying to change this relationship from unpredictable adversarial relationship to a predictable, stable adversarial relationship. This happens just before Secretary of State Blinken has his first meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on the sidelines of the Arctic Council in Iceland this week. And there's talk of a Biden-Putin summit. I have interesting feelings about that, but I'll hold my fire on that. But is this being interpreted? I don't Ryan, think it is. I, I, criticize, I criticize it, the perception okay. as a favor to the Kremlin. And perceptions are important. They are extremely important. So when you are perceived to have subverted the will of the American people to do the Kremlin a favor, that's a big, 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 big problem. And when you're perceived by European allies to have done the Kremlin a favor, that is a big problem. When you're perceived by Ukraine, whose very territorial integrity is under threat every single day, and whose political system is undermined by Kremlin corruption, and Nord and you, Stream and is you do part that. of that. And Nord Stream is part of that. Of course, the corruption pipeline, you know, started by, of course, the very emblematic character of co-opting Western officials, Gerhard Schroeder, right? And when, when you have all of this, perceptions are important. So it becomes less important what their motivation was and more important how people perceive things. And that is the first lesson of politics. So it is very, very important that this was a political disaster. Christine, how is this viewed in Europe? Is it viewed as yet another American favor to the Russians, um, fairly or unfairly? I think in Germany, there's also a, there's a relief of the U.S. not throwing more sanctions at Germany. I mean, I think that one part of the Nord Stream problem in Germany is that because of the Trump era, the, because of the sanctions, and because of President Trump's very strong line on this and his 
tremendous unpopularity, the issue of Nord Stream has become less about Russia and more about American aggression or perceived American aggression. So I think when you look at Germany, there is some relief, some sense of normalization, a movement away from the adversarial relationship that President Trump defined. So Germans probably more in favor and probably might be then more willing to look at Nord Stream for what it is, which is a Russian question rather than an American one. But for the rest of Europe, you know, there is this question about, well, what kind of things is the U.S. putting on a platter to Russia yet again? Can we trust the U.S. on Russia? But then what I'm worried about on the perception side isn't the European perceptions, but are the Russian perceptions. And you brought it up and we look at it here. What does this signal? There's this question of the shell companies. Like if you build those relationships, you invest in the young politicians or the up and coming businessmen, then 30 years down the line, you have their loyalty and you can do whatever the heck you want. Right. Um, and that kind of asymmetric issue is going to continue. Russia is going to be more cornered, more economically vulnerable, more unstable, more unpredictable in the decades to come. And if this signals that this particular game plan of financial support, political connections is not something that the Americans will touch, you're going to see so much more of it. Yeah, yeah, North yeah. Stream 2 was a unbelievably ugh, galling project. I mean, it came on the heels of Crimea. It's not as though this was formally announced before Crimea. Everyone, the sanctions were in place, the entire world was outraged at Russia. And Russia says, oh, by the way, we're gonna expand the freaking pipeline that you guys hate, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's not, it was ridiculous unacceptable from its very beginning. And now at this stage with a new administration that has no illusions about Russia to be like, yeah, okay, never mind," or any perception of that, that is going to be dangerous. What the US administration should not do is show a green light to Russia to continue pursuing asymmetric methods for undermining European strategic and economic interests. And that is the signal that is so important. that The US has its allies in Europe. They do. A lot of the work and investments that have happened in NATO, they really matter. That's on board. That's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about what Russia takes from this. And I'm worried about as Russia is announcing unfriendly country lists and you know Putin in his public you know yearly address talking about red lines and being tough and really you know having a very bellicose attitude to the world if in response to that the US is seen as being soft it's mm -hmm. going to get eaten up look what happened to the Europeans when they went to Moscow look at the press conferences right the Russians are interested in wiping the floor with soft westerners the U.S. cannot be put into a position where that's going to happen. And if this leads to that in Iceland, we're in for a really rough ride. Josh, I want to give you the last word before we move to the second half, because it seems to me this was a damned if you do, damned if you don't moment for the United States. I mean, really, there was not a, a good. I mean, I, I framed it as threading a difficult needle. I probably needed to find a tougher metaphor than that. They may be involving frying pans and fires. But just what are your thoughts on this? Well, my preferred metaphor is that it needs to be a bridge. It needs to be a bridge to a negotiated deal with the Europeans, mainly with the Germans, but also, you know, something that is going to get the Ukrainians and the Poles and the Balts on board. I mean, they're never going to be on board with Nord Stream 2, nor will we, but might be at least satisfied to the point of being less vocal about it or even saying that they appreciate the package of countermeasures. 
And I mean, to Paul's point too, Congress is uniquely obsessed with sanctioning Nord Stream 2. And the administration is going to have to come to them with a real package of significant things to protect from the downside impacts. Things like, you know, substantially more LNG infrastructure to pull in the vaults, or like extending the Russia-Ukraine gas deal past 2024, and then Mm -hmm. also agreeing to snap back contingency sanctions and compensation for for guarantees for Ukraine if Russia cuts off the gas, or like helping Ukraine with energy reform, getting German support for the Three Seas Initiative. It has to be big and crowd-pleasing. Yep, and making Ukraine a major non-NATO ally, I would add to that list. I'll make it, I'll make it. 10 seconds, this deal had to be struck before the waiver to give the person the farm and then say, okay, now you got to give me something. It's crazy. Like, what? You know, like, you don't you don't give away the farm, you know? Like, I mean, you got it. And this is what we're getting for it. You would see a different reaction than you do, but you don't see that at all. The timing of the waiver had to be driven by this legislative mandate every night, you know, with 90 days had to go to Congress. So, yeah, it would have been preferable those are some really big things, you know, diplomatic negotiations that I just rattled off. But it's not the type of thing you can necessarily do in a month or two. But they have to within the next month or two. They have a really short time yep. frame, a, a short leash on it. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time, but it can be done. And, and again, I, I think that is why the need to be able to create some space to do that with the Germans and our other allies are why this move, if it's a bridge to that negotiated deal with the Europeans, is frankly supported by, it seems, America's most experienced and hawkish Russia hands. I'm thinking like Toria Newland, like Dan Fried, because they folks who understand that the way that we stand strongly up against the Kremlin is with the United Transatlantic Alliance. No, I think we could continue this forever, but we have to shift to below the fold to a related topic. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and broaden the aperture a bit to look at Nord Stream 2 in the context of other vectors of Russian malign influence in Europe. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is Josh Rudolph, fellow for Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who also served at the IMF and U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author of the recent must-read report, Covert Foreign Money. Also joining us from Capitol Hill is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, and independent by bipartisan and bicameral commission in the United States Congress. And joining us from across the pond in lovely Riga is Christine Berzinia, a senior fellow at the GMF's Alliance for Security and Democracy, where she works on building transatlantic cooperation to counter authoritarian interference in democracy. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the Power Vertical podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. Гоним вас. С новым веком. So Nord Stream 2 does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in a broader ecosystem of strategic corruption. 
Critics say the pipeline is going to pump as much corruption into Europe as it does gas. Matthias Varnig, as we've noted, the CEO of the Nord Stream 2 company, is a former Stasi agent and friend of Putin from his KGB Dresden days, who worked with the KGB and its successors to set up shell companies in Europe that have acted as vectors of malign Russian influence aimed at undermining Western democratic institutions in Europe. This strategic corruption and elite capture are central to the security concerns related to Nord Stream 2, and they exist in a much broader ecosystem. Josh, I want to start with you because I think we're into something here we can all agree on, right? That we got a problem here. You know, Houston, we have a problem. You've done a lot of work on this, most notably your excellent report on covert money. How do you see Nord Stream 2 fitting into this larger, broader ecosystem of Russian strategic corruption in Europe? Because I don't think it could be separated. Yeah, no, for, for, for sure. It, it is closely... I mean, very similar pathways. Corruption provides a pathway for a lot of things, whether it's direct political interference, if you're funneling money to a to political party, or whether it's pathways to strategic economic coercion, as I might describe pipeline politics. Either way, there are cronies involved getting rich under the table. There are domestic proxies, whether they are shell companies or or people like we were talking about warning. I can't believe we've talked this whole conversation about Nord Stream 2 and malign influence and Schroeder hasn't come up. Yet. I think Paul brought, brought him I, up. I mentioned him. <laughs> Sorry, okay. I, I got you. I got you, my friend. The yeah, only yeah. former head of government whose name is now a, an adjective. <laughs> I know. I know. It's 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 pretty extraordinary, you know. Schroederize has become the you know the descriptive term for anybody that that engages in this activity. And so that's I would a, have to exactly not right. necessarily in Germany, where still lots of people think of him as the respected former chancellor. So I'd say that you know that within particular audiences, it doesn't burn you forever. That's, but that's it's, but that's also important. If he's seen within the country as a former respected chancellor, like the bar has to be as high as any for U.S. action. Frankly, I would think that you know to take action against somebody like that would have to be within the legal system, not sanctions. You're not going. We should not be sanctioning a former a former chancellor of of Germany. The approach to this, frankly, like the approach to both. Nord Stream and more broadly, this challenge of covert foreign money is not to beat up on our ally and, and drive splits between us and them, but to help them build resilience. And, you know, we started talking about what that might look like on, on Nord Stream a little bit. On the covert foreign money side, broadly, it is transparency, it's policies around corporate ownership and media funding and campaign finance, a lot of the, the, the work that that I went, went went through in that covert foreign money report mm -hmm. talked about once on a past episode. And since then, I appreciated, Brian, you, you, you giving me the chance to kind of go through that. It was probably six months ago. Since then, I've testified on it twice to the European Parliament, and now they are in, a, in the process of using that research explicitly as a basis for common EU standards that would be binding at the level of European elections and a benchmark for, for national member state laws. And so so they are actually moving faster than us, frankly. Until we get HR1S1 passed, they are moving faster on building resilience and closing loopholes. And that's the first and foremost way that you address this issue. And then there's also things the administration can do and that I have been encouraging Treasury to start doing much more aggressively, which we can talk about. But it starts with resilience, not beating up on Treasury. Yeah. 
No, I, I would. I mean, we we all have a lot to, of work to do on both sides of the Atlantic on building resilience. I mean, and this leads us right into Christine, because your work at GMF focuses on countering authoritarian influence in democracies. Same question to you. I mean, Nord Stream 2 fits into this larger picture of Russian-sponsored strategic corruption. But also, I want to add to that, how aware are Europeans, and particularly Germans, of this problem, of how widespread this problem is? We didn't talk about Gazprom Germania yet the German affiliate of, of the Russian natural gas giant Gazprom, which has essentially become a retirement home for Stasi agents. Um, you have all these little shell companies with mind-bogglingly opaque ownership structures like Centrex in Austria or Vemex in the Czech Republic. It's just to cite two examples that I've dug into myself that are, you know, they have crazy ownership structures owned by shell companies in you know, several different different jurisdictions. If you do the work, all the paths lead back to Gazprom, right? <laughs> all the paths lead back to Gazprom. How aware are Europeans of this? And what can the U.S. do to, to advance this, to help in this regard? So I think that there is more awareness um, about the... <laughs> The kind of dirty money and uh, essentially reputation personnel laundering schemes that happen, but I guess an improvement in the situation is not very high awareness of the problem. And you also have a problem of dealing with it, the willingness to take this question on. It is difficult. And I think that it is easier for the U.S. or big countries to point to smaller countries that have had questions with the money laundering in the past to say, clean up your house. It's harder to do that in London. It's harder to do that in Luxembourg. It's harder to do that in Germany. And there's a sense of unfairness about that. Why are certain things okay in the big countries and not mm. okay in the small countries? Let's have a consistent approach and but you know have a generalized commitment to taking care of this everywhere. That right. I think is incredibly important. No, and this this I should note did not start yesterday, and it did not even start after the breakup of the Soviet Union. This all started when the Soviet Union understood where things were going in Eastern Europe, and they decided to create contingency plans. And this is when Operation Luke was launched to basically move a lot of money out of the former East Germany and to create shell companies across the East. This, and Putin was involved with this, um, as was Vodnik in Dresden. Catherine Belton's book, Putin's People, fleshes this out quite brilliantly. Paul, in your capacity as a policy advisor on the Helsinki Commission, you've been involved in drafting some pretty important legislation designed to combat Russian strategic corruption here in the United States. And we've had podcasts on that in the past. When you look at this problem in Europe, the problem of Russian strategic corruption, and Nord Stream 2's place in it, but the broader ecosystem, are there other instruments we can use to help our allies in Europe, to help our friends in Europe, that are not as blunt as sanctions? I guess I know you you like sanctions, so do I, <laughs> but, uh, mm. but sometimes sanctions are a very blunt instrument, and they need to be wielded very carefully. Are there other policy instruments we can use here? So, Brian, I mean, I, I'll, I'll spare you guys spiels on the on the 10 plus bills I'm working right now. <laughs> just kind of sketch out. Uh, and I did this on the previous podcast as well, just to say I view this issue in three pillars. I, feel, I see pillar one as resiliency, which Josh talked a lot about. That is to say, building uh, institutions that cannot be so easily infiltrated, not so easily used, like banning anonymous shell companies, that sort of thing. Pillar two as going after the individual kleptocrats themselves with sanctions and law enforcement. And pillar three 
as anti-corruption diplomacy, that sort of stuff, like actually making the massive amount of commitments we have against corruption matter, which of course, we've taken all these international commitments, right? And we have so many treaties and agreements and none of it gets enforced, none of it actually ends up meaning anything unless we make it mean something at the national level. So I guess to your point as to what is to be done about this, I mean, my preference is that these tactics are illegal, that we have strong law enforcement that can work together across borders to go after them. Like, for example, Matthias Varnick should probably be in jail. You know, I mean, to the extent that he could be in jail, he should be in jail. But but could you ever see German law enforcement going after him? You know, and I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that where, where we just have, we're just way, way, way behind the curve on what is illegal, what is legal. And, and I, you know, I really want to commend Josh on his report and the work that he's done, because obviously his work informs the policymaking that we do and that I that I recommend to our members. And Josh and I are one for one on 99% of what needs to happen in this space. I just view with regard to sanctions as not beating up on our allies. The Lemberg sanction was not beating up on our allies. The Gertler sanction was not beating up on our allies. This stuff is, we can be smart about this. We can, the only diplomatic solution is not one where Germany walks away with the farm. You know, I mean, there's a diplomatic solution where we go and we talk to them and we say, hey, look, we're going to sanction these guys. And and what does that mean to you? And how can we make it so that you can live with this? You know, I mean, there's mm. there's ways you can do sanctions that's not just OFAC comes out with a sanction that no one expected and then everybody loses their minds. You know, you can massage this stuff. You can talk about this stuff, which was clearly done in the Lemberg's case. I mean, who knows? If you finagled it and finessed it correctly, I imagine if Merkel could play the, oh, I didn't know, you know, to have some of these people get sanctioned, would it be so bad, you know? And I mean, and I mean, you you want to tell me Boris Johnson wouldn't prefer that America take care of the corrupt guys in London so that he doesn't have to? I mean, there's, there's, there's so many ways that you can finagle and finesse this stuff with smart diplomacy, you know? So I believe in diplomacy accompanying sanctions. I am not somebody that said, oh, let's go out and bash everybody over the head. Let's beat up on our allies. Like, no, 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 no. But I do believe in the power of sanctions, and I do believe that they're a useful tool, and I do believe that we should be using them. Picking up on that, Paul, is like I, I would like to see some some really strong transatlantic international regimes on this, on everything from money laundering to shell companies to beneficial ownership. I mean, I've advocated many times expanding the NATO ministerials to include finance ministries and law enforcement, you know, attorneys general and, and interior ministers, because these are all part of the national security discussion. And we very much need to be on the same page with our allies in order to combat this. So we're not in this situation now where we're seeing this in an entirely different way than our friends in Germany are. We're bumping up toward the end here, but I, I wanted to ask Josh another question similar to the one I just directed at Paul about the legislative grants. Is the U.S. Treasury Department, where you used to work, Josh, doing enough to fight corruption and kleptocracy, not just here in the United States, but overseas? No, unfortunately. So I just covered this issue in uh, an article just a couple of days ago in Foreign Affairs called The Fight Against Corruption Needs Economists. Look that up. I mean, Secretary Yellen has not gotten the memo on how fiercely Biden and his foreign policy pros want to fight corruption and kleptocracy. I mean, more than any other American political figure, Joe Biden gets it. He's been warning for years about the national security threat of malign oligarchic influence and the secret flows of dirty money. And all of his top 
foreign policy advisors are now his national security cabinet, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Samantha Power. They're all banging the war drum in unison about how they're gearing up to tackle this challenge. But the Treasury Department is AWOL, just not mentioning the word corruption in any of their speeches or, or call readouts or tweets. I mean, except for one time that, you know, based on my my re reporting, the, the, the White House had to call up their press shop and tell them directly, say that you care about corruption and say it right now. And in a standalone statement, uh, please. And, you know, lawmakers, too, are sending Treasury letters laying out steps that they frankly should have taken within the first 100 days, like regulating private equity and hedge funds, publishing the first ever national corruption risk assessment to guide bank compliance. And the Treasury Department, they control more tools to crack mm -hmm. down on corruption than any part of the U.S. government. Regs, enforcement, intel, policy, diplomacy, ties with the private sector and Congress. And they've coordinated all of those tools in unison once before. After 9-11, the fight right. against terrorist financing, that was like a big reason why we've had no big terrorist attacks since right. then. And we found proof of that in Abbottabad. And so now it's time for Treasury to take its weapons back up and protect us from the new foreign threat by bumping anti-corruption up to the top of its international agenda. Preach, my man, preach. I'm, 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 I'm with Josh on this, from, 110%. From your lips to God's ears, Josh. No, I, I agree with you. Since Treasury does need to be front and center, and this Treasury is at the center, should be at the center of the national security discussion. As we're wrapping up, I do want to give Christine the last word since she is staying up so late with us over there in Riga. And I, I, I wanted to, any, any last words before we wrap it up for the week? Absolutely. I think there's a lot to be done on diplomacy and on the security and defense side from this administration. We're talking about Nord Stream 2 as a matter of corruption. We're talking about it in terms of energy security molecules. Yeah, fine. All of that. But also it's a part of a broader security challenge. It's a part of the asymmetric toolkit. And the way to get at that is to show strength in the traditional military sense. We have a NATO summit coming up within the next month. That is a fabulous place to make counter perceptions of softness with solidarity, with actual commitments to ensure that the progress that has been made on hard security on the eastern flank, that that only continues over the next years. If you want to make sure that the Balts and the Poles and the Ukrainians are happy, make sure to provide support on the area that is most important, which is the existential questions. So I think mm. that absolutely needs to continue. Nord Stream 2 is a political problem, a geopolitical problem. Provide geopolitical and security support to address that basket. LNG terminals alone is not going to do it because it's not just a problem of molecules. Well, that is a great way to wrap up because I don't think you're going to get any objection to any of the rest of us on this call. On that note, we shall wrap it up for this week. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to a very lively edition of the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill in D.C. has been Josh Rudolph, fellow from Aligned Influence at the German Marshall Funds Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who served at the IMF at the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh, I will mention again, is also the author of the must-read recent report, Covert Foreign Money. 
Also joining us from Capitol Hill has been Paul Bassaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, and independent bipartisan and bicameral commission in the United States Congress. And joining us from across the pond, where it's really, really late at night now in Riga, has been Christina Birzinia, a senior fellow at the GMF Alliance for Security Democracy, where she works on building transatlantic cooperation to counter authoritarian interference in democracy. Thank you all for a fascinating, enlightening, and very, very lively discussion. Good talk, guys. This is what we need to do with the Germans. Like, among the friends, start <laughs> disagreement, and by the end of the conversation, we've got a plan. Yeah, there uh, we go, man. And I would also episode. like to thank our awesome production team, Lance Rikas, is in the virtual control room, who keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And I'd also like to thank the newest member of the Power Vertical team, Mariah Jalad, who handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound alive lot better than we do in real life, even when we're agitated. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, and if you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.